Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. When this building was developed, um, it really was needed in this city. I mean, the 76ers uh, were playing in the convention center and the old arena, which really was pretty much of a dump, and uh, the palestra, they were all over the place. Uh, and they needed a home, and of course, in order to get the, the Flyers a home, we had to build the Spectrum. So uh, we, we thought that it would be a success because, look, this is a major city and it had no arena, really. Uh, but it exceeded, far exceeded our expectations. The building is intimate. Uh, the fans feel very close to the action. We brought all the various events in here that we really never had in this city before because we didn't have the proper facilities. So, uh, I think it's, it was a great success just because it was perfect for its time. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Really? Okay, I guess we're on the way. Here we go. How are you doing, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available. Welcome to the proceedings. Thanks for finding us. And uh, it is uh, episode number 278. My goodness. We are uh, pleased to welcome back to these microphones uh, the great Alan Bass. You may remember Alan from uh, our uh, fun episode uh, 190 when we talked about the uh, Philadelphia Flyers. But but frankly, hockey outside of the Flyers, right? The, the Flyers being the uh, totemic uh, NHL and uh, hockey franchise in Philadelphia history. But uh, as we discovered in that episode back in uh, 2020, uh, that was uh, just uh, a cherry on the top, if you will, of uh, the history of Philadelphia hockey. And if you also remember our episode number 241 uh, with Lou Scheinfeld, we talked about the Flyers and some of the other hockey exploits of the Philadelphia spectrum. Uh, that's also an episode that will be helpful for your knowledge this week as we have Alan back to discuss his latest book about a, uh, a person uh, very much enmeshed in both of those previous conversations. He was, as the uh, title of uh, Alan's book suggests, the last sports mogul. And that's not putting it uh, too hyperbolically by any stretch. Uh, that is the conversation uh, this week with Alan. We'll talk about the life of Ed Snyder. The last sports mogul, uh, by, by many accounts, uh, but no doubt, uh, Ed Snyder, the um, I think the modern day patron patron saint of professional sports and culture in Philadelphia, well revered, passed away in 2016 at the uh, age of 83, uh, as uh, revered as a, a, a champion of of, of sports. Uh, was a part of the ownership structure of the Philadelphia Eagles. We'll talk about that. Um, was uh, a former owner uh, of the Philadelphia 76ers. We'll talk about that. 
uh, but it was obviously uh, instrumental uh, in the luring of what became an expansion franchise, a relatively rare occurrence in NHL history, uh, circa late 60s, early 70s, in the form of the Philadelphia Flyers. And the uh, potentially uh, largest component of that bait was the promise of and ultimate construction of the legendary Spectrum, uh, America's showplace, it was uh, referred to. We've talked about that uh, on previous occasions as well. Um, uh, just part of the whole sort of dynamic uh, that led leading to things like SpectraCore, a company built around the Spectrum and all the various uh, uh, components thereof and outside of. Uh, the the uh, founding of uh, one of the first uh, regional premium cable channels, uh, which included uh, sports rights such as the Flyers in the 76ers called Prism. Uh, he was part of the uh, uh, the founding of of what some call the first all sports radio station WIP in Philadelphia. This was a guy, Ed Snyder, who was again synonymous with Philadelphia and sports. And um, uh, we get into his history, his story, some of it known, a bunch of it not really well known. Um, and uh, frankly, just understanding uh, just how important and um, iconic uh, this man was, Ed Snyder, in um, bringing Philadelphia, I would say, frankly, to the modern sports uh, oasis that it's become today as bringing it into the uh, the modern world, if you will, pro sports. We've learned about this in many other episodes, uh, being essentially the um, uh, almost the uh, the golden ticket, if you will, pro sports uh, for uh, punching your way into the club of being a major uh, metropolitan area and city. And Philadelphia clearly has been, always has been one of those cities. But you have to remember, you know, in the late 60s, um, you know, the 76ers were kind of literally bouncing around in a very substandard arena. Um, uh, you know, the Philadelphia Warriors had left for greener pastures uh, years before that. Uh, and uh, it was bereft of hockey, NHL hockey uh, as well. And, um, you know, the Spectrum, obviously a place for play- things like the Philadelphia Fever and uh, the the or- origination of indoor soccer, uh, modern day indoor soccer is, uh, by most accounts. Uh, World Team Tennis played there, right? That was uh, the Philadelphia Freedoms, very famously uh, memorialized and uh, still sung today uh, on many classic radio stations with Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John, Billie Jean King and her crowd. Um, yeah, arena football in the spectrum and all that kind of stuff. Ed Snyder's the guy. He's the man. And uh, we're going to get into his story, his history, and his contributions to Philadelphia sports with our return guest. Welcome back, Alan Bass. And again, the book uh, that is uh, coming out uh, as we release this episode tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, September the 27th. Uh, if you're hearing this the day before, well, just go to Amazon or click on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up this ep- uh, episode uh, with uh, Alan Bass, number 278, and uh, you'll find a convenient link to it. It's uh, If it's the day before, you'll pre-order it. No problem. You'll make sure you get it the next day for sure. Amazon will get it to you as quickly as possible. Uh, if you're hearing it uh, on the, uh, uh, the the 28th or thereafter, um, sorry, 29th, 28th, what, what would I say? What, what date? 
uh, that when you're hearing, if you're hearing this on the 26th, that's the Monday, right? Uh, tomorrow, the 27th is when the book is released. If you're hearing this episode on the 27th or beyond, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, it's available now. So either way, why are you waiting? Uh, just go, go find uh, wherever good books are found or our website and uh, click through our convenient affiliate link there to Amazon. We'll get a couple of shekels uh, of love for uh, you doing so. Uh, coming up in just a few moments time, our conversation with Alan Bass. We're talking about Ed Snyder uh, after this brief and quick promotional message. Um, and again, the book, it's called The Last Sports Mogul. It's fantastic. Um, I've had the chance of reading it. It's great. I uh, highly encourage it. I also highly encourage you to check out our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, our pal P.F. Wilson in Cincinnati, another great city. Uh, and um, what better way to commemorate this episode, the great uh, Ed Snyder and all his contributions to Philadelphia sports by going to OldSchoolShirts.com and searching up under the Cities tab, look for Philadelphia, and you're going to find great shirts uh, commemorating lots of great sports and pop culture memories from Philadelphia and environs, uh, including the vet, a great uh, shirt there. The, the uh, Philadelphia Fever has a shirt there. The Philadelphia Freedom's got a shirt in there. Remember the Philadelphia Bell, the World Football League, that's there. The Philadelphia Blazers, the uh, long-forgotten World Hockey Association franchise. There's a great shirt for them. The Philadelphia Stars of the USFL. Got you covered there. Philadelphia Soul of the Arena League Football, Arena, Arena Football League, Arena, whatever you want. Philadelphia Adams, old NASL, a little bit of indoor too uh, in soccer frame. And even Prism, the uh, the cable channel, the regional cable channel that uh, Ed Snyder was instrumental in, in starting up and and almost the model, if you will, for today's regional sports networks and, and, and what they're evolving to. Um, all those shirts and many, many more, not just for Philadelphia, but literally you pick the city probably a good chance is not only sports memories there, but also great pop culture histories uh, of things of yore from those cities as well. Again, oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS. Make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS to ensure your savings of 10% of every stinking thing that you buy at oldschoolshirts.com. Thank you, PF. Thank you to oldschoolshirts.com. And thank you, kind listener for um, sticking around. Uh, this is a, a wonderful discussion uh, and a great memory of a uh, uh, an iconic uh, contributor to the Philadelphia sports and culture scene. His name was Ed Snyder. Our conversation with his name, Alan Bass. Let's talk about it. Coming up, please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you remind our audience of the day job and your uh, your your place of domicile? Because I think that gives a little bit of a tip towards some of the writings you have done, including uh, in our one of our past episodes when we talked about Philadelphia hockey. Sure. Uh, so full time, I'm a small business owner. Writing has been a uh, a fun side gig for me for uh, many years since college, really. Um, and my, my first book was while I was in college in 2010, entitled The Great Expansion, The Ultimate Risk That Changed the NHL Forever, uh, of course, on uh, 1967 expansion when the league doubled in size from six to 12. Uh, my second book was published uh, just before COVID hit. Uh, it was uh, Professional Hockey in Philadelphia, A History, and it basically went through every 
professional team that ever played in Philadelphia from uh, the Quaker City Hockey Club in the 1890s all the way through the Phantoms up until they left for Lehigh Valley. Uh, and uh, like you mentioned, uh, I, I was on this show previously to talk about that book. And of course, I, like you, would advise uh, any listeners interested in that to go back and listen to it. I think the episode was back in uh, fall of 2020. Yeah, and it was a hoop because it helped us go a little bit deeper, a lot deeper into the Philadelphia sort of experience and you know, the WHA sort of nibbling around the edges and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, Phil and the Flyers, I mean, the whole story around the Flyers uh, materializing, he says, it's been a long day, um, <laughs> that, um, you know, was a story in and of itself because uh, without, I think, the Flyers, you don't have a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, that came out of it, including, I think, this story, uh, in particular, with a, a, a one of the, I guess, sort of the, the most, um, I guess, the kernel uh, of this story with a K, and maybe with a C, if you actually think about it. Um, <laughs> tell me about how you come across uh, this story and this man, and and why he is and was so central to uh, the story of Philadelphia and sports, in particular the Flyers, but but far more than just that too. So I've always had an interest in Ed Snyder uh, from the time I was a kid, I, you know, having a business background uh, and of course, being a hockey fan, uh, I was well exposed to Ed Snyder from a young age uh, growing up in the Philadelphia region. Uh, but I was always mystified by him, not from a heroic aspect, but from a businessman an entrepreneurial aspect. Uh, I understood even at a young age what he had built. Uh, I didn't know exactly the full history when I was young, but as I got older and as I got deeper into the business world, I really began to respect the company he grew, not necessarily the flyers per se. That was a big part of it. And obviously the impetus for the rest of the company, but you know, he turned essentially a $2 million expansion fee that bought the flyers into this multi-billion dollar business that still exists in the form of Comcast Spectacor today. So my interest in exploring this story was to figure out how that happened. Um, you know, the story is not a history of the Flyers by any means. There is, of course, a lot of Flyers in it, but the story is about Ed and why he decided to go into this business, how he decided to go into this business, and how he grew it from this fledgling hockey club for which he was in heavy, heavy debt for many years, um, and how he took that and extrapolated it into this massive business empire uh, that stood when he passed in 2016. Um, you know, it, it, Ed had some level of presence in each of my last two books. My my first book on expansion had a chapter on each of the six new teams, uh, and I was fortunate to be able to speak with him about the Flyers uh, chapter for, for that book. Uh, and then, of course, as I got a little deeper into my second book, the Flyers chapter there, rather than talk about a history of the Flyers, which has been covered ad nauseum and very well by Jay Greenberg, who unfortunately we lost uh, uh, during the pandemic, um, he, I didn't want to do a history of the Flyers in that book. So I decided to look a little deeper into how they were created and Ed Snyder's and Jerry Wollman's part in that story. And as I got it deeper into that story, I got a very, very deep interest in this book, which frankly is one that I kind of expected to have been written at this stage in my life. Uh, and one that I was looking forward to reading one day from, you know, a beat writer or someone who had covered the team for years. Um, and when I had contacted the family, they said, no, nobody, nobody had ever reached out. Um, and we'd be happy for you to for you to do it. So that's kind of where this project came from. It was something that I had always hoped to read, but when nobody decided to go after it and, and research and write it, I decided that 
you know, the, the Philadelphia region for sure, but, but for certain the hockey world, the sports world and the sports business world needed this book because of how important it was and how important his journey was to the history of hockey and of many other sports, to be perfectly frank. Uh, so that's really how this book came about. Yeah, it's the old Beverly Clearly line. Say, so if you don't see a book on the shelf uh, that you want to read, then uh, then you got to write it. And uh, looks like that's exactly <laughs> what you did. Well, all right. So, but it, this is a story not only of of the Flyers, but also the Spectrum and its uh, uh, unique uh, role in the American sports scene and all that stuff. Let's go back though to uh, I don't want to say the beginning because I'm sure you know, there's lots of interesting origin stories. I'm sure you you get into that and you know everybody's born and everybody's got parents everybody's got to go to school um but his his entry to sports um uh was uh pretty interesting because he kind of got into it uh with some family members uh, and not in the sport of hockey but of pro football to kind of really get his feet wet which is which is saying something because football is kind of a kind of a rough and tumble sport. And uh, he just um, maybe a little bit of background as to sort of how he gets to that point and, and what uh, comes of that with the Eagles. Sure. So in the, uh, in this early 1960s, Ed had a record company that he ran with his friend. Uh, and the two of them were essentially selling record merchandisers and record racks to uh, retail stores up and down the Eastern seaboard. Very long story short. It's, you know, the long stories in the book, of course, uh, but it, it wasn't something that they wanted to do long term. Ed was miserable. They weren't. They were successful, but they weren't wildly successful. And and it just it didn't seem like something he wanted to do in the long run. And so um, they they folded the business. And uh, through it's not fully known exactly how he got the job offer from Jerry Wolman, who had purchased the Eagles uh, right around the same time. Uh, but there was a mutual friend in Earl Foreman who was Ed's brother-in-law, uh, was married to his sister. Um, and Earl was one of Jerry's many lawyers, and it was, he was a business partner in the Eagles. Uh, Jerry owned 52%, and Earl owned 48%. Uh, and uh, Jerry Woolman was also very friendly with uh, Ed's father, uh, Saul Snyder, who was an entrepreneur and a grocery store owner in the Washington, D.C. region, where Woolman uh, had, had, uh, had made his living uh, as a developer. So somehow, there's a lot of various theories and stories, but nothing concrete. Somehow, Jerry and Ed got connected. And uh, Jerry offered him a job of essentially running the Eagles because Jerry was still running his uh, his uh, construction company, his, his his development company, and so he was always traveling. He was he was building this crown jewel, uh, the Hancock Building in Chicago, and so he knew he wasn't going to be there to run the team. Uh, but owning the Eagles was always a dream of his, having having grown up just a little bit north of the city. So. Um, Ed got Ed was named as uh, the vice president of the team, the team treasurer. Um, he, had, he had a multitude of titles over the course of some years, but essentially he ran the day to day of the of the sports team. So Ed was actually instrumental in helping get veteran stadium built. Uh, it wasn't built until after he had left the Eagles, uh, but the Eagles were playing in Franklin Field uh, out where UPenn is right now. And. Uh, it was it was a fine stadium, but it, he knew that he, he was always dreaming big, and he knew that something more was needed. I would so, call it I would call it venerable at that point. Yes, sure, that's a <laughs> that's a kind great of charitable, adjective. I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> sure. So um, he decided uh, he used his contacts at City Hall uh, and Jerry Wolman's contacts throughout the city to find a nice spot uh, near a, near a swamp in southern Philadelphia. Um, nor north of Patterson Avenue, and uh, they decided to they put a bond 
uh, vote out to the city and they raised uh, many, many millions of dollars uh, in order to build a new football baseball stadium that both the Phillies and the Eagles could use. Uh, that, that didn't get finished until after he left the organization. Um, and so he rightfully doesn't get a ton of credit for that because it was mostly built after he had left, but he at least got the wheels moving. Um, but from a day-to-day standpoint for years, he ran that organization. He, he oversaw ticket sales. He oversaw the general, the general manager and coach. He, he oversaw every aspect of that organization from a business perspective. And it really gave him uh, the education that he was eventually going to need, unbeknownst to him, to start a hockey franchise, to run a hockey franchise, to eventually run a basketball franchise in the Sixers one day. It, those years with the Eagles, and it was only about three and a half, four years, it gave him an, an exemplary education in how sports leagues work, about how TV contracts work, uh, fighting with rival leagues. The NFL was fighting with the AFL at that time. Uh, it, it, working with uh, government officials, he testified in front of Congress at one point as a member of, as, as, a, uh, as a member of the Flyers, but he was referencing his work with the Eagles and his work between the NFL and the AFL and working with the merger. There was, there was so much to learn in football because as you know, just like today, it was one of the biggest sports in the country. And so uh, Ed really got a crash course in professional sports uh, running that team. Uh, and the team by all accounts were successful. I mean, you look at some of the financial documents uh, that are available from his personal archive and the team w- between him and Jerry Wollman and Earl Foreman, those three grew that team very well. Revenue grew. They were selling out the stadium every game. Uh, the team was okay. They, they weren't quite as bad as when they took the team over, uh, but the team improved a little bit and they, they fought every game and they sold out. Um, so it, it's a really important chapter uh, that actually was probably the most difficult because there was almost nothing written about Ed's time with the Eagles. And you really had to dig deep to find some, some information. Uh, but it's so crucial to understanding where the Flyers came from. You know, he didn't just wake up one day and say, I want to be in sports. It was kind of an accidental job that came about. And then from there, you know, as he always said, an entrepreneur always thinks what's next. All right, we're running the Eagles. What's next? What more can we do? And that's where the idea for the Flyers came from. He heard from a mutual friend that, the NHL was expanding and he thought, huh, that, that'd be really interesting. I, you know, I wonder if we could build a stadium. He goes to Jerry Wollman, who's the builder. And he says, you know, maybe you could get the stadium built and I can work with the NHL and we can, we can together, you know, as business partners, uh, make this work. Um, because at that time, Ed did not have ownership in the Eagles. He was just an employee. He had an option to purchase 7%, but he never had ownership. So this was his opportunity to become a business partner with Jerry Wollman and start this new entrepreneurial effort. Uh, and, you know, very long story short, uh, it obviously worked. They got, they, they were granted the league, uh, I'm sorry, they were granted the team by the NHL. Uh, the spectrum eventually got built and, you know, it's history from there. All right. Well, let's talk about that segue. I, in particular, I also want to talk about Earl Foreman, right? Cause this is the guy who's not directly related to Snyder, the brother-in-law, right. But close enough, right. Right. Uh, Wallman and, and Foreman play uh, roles in this story from the Eagles through um, the courting and the the uh, the granting of the franchise uh, and the building of the spectrum. Um, uh, maybe a little bit of a, a background. We heard about Woolman. What of this Foreman character? Because by the way, I, you know, not, not that you're looking for another book, but this is a guy who deserves a biography too, especially in the realm of sports, because he's got a whole bunch of shenanigans. Uh, MISL uh, sort of as the exclamation point and everything in ABA and all that kind of stuff. Um What's what's Foreman's role sort of in this troika, I guess, of the Eagles and then 
this pursuit, I guess, jointly of the flyers and and the building of the spectrum to lure. Sure. So Earl Foreman, like I said, he was Ed's brother-in-law and Ed was a Ed was a family man. He was he was brought up in uh, a, a a Jewish family, a family of immigrants. Uh, you know, his his uh, father was a child when his parents uh, when, when his parents, Ed's grandparents, uh, basically took them out of uh, what was then the Russian Empire. You know, there were pogroms. Jews were getting persecuted, uh, and they they escaped and and came to the U.S. So so Ed was Ed was always taught from a young age that no matter what happens you know, family always comes first. You always stick with your family. Uh, and Earl Foreman had a similar upbringing. Uh, and so when he married Ed's sister, Phyllis, he kind of entered that Snyder family and was was basically like a like an actual brother to Ed. He wasn't just a brother-in-law. He, he was essentially Ed's brother. They were very close. Um, he was treated like a member of the Snyder family by Ed's parents. Um, and so the two of them were really, were really very tight. Um, it's probably the way that Ed got the job with the Eagles in the first place. You know, Foreman probably vouched for him. Um, and so Foreman was doing a lot of deals for Jerry Wallman and Jerry Wallman was a very generous person. He, he was regularly giving money away. Uh, he would give uh, pieces of his businesses to people that had helped him. Um, he, he would give uh, Earl Foreman pieces of business deals that Earl helped him close. Um, so when the two of them went in together to buy the Eagles, you know, it was, it was just natural that they would be business partners. Um, and when Ed was brought in, you know, Earl was a, was a very strong advisor. Earl was not involved in the day-to-day -day per se, but he was always there for Ed to bounce ideas off of, you know, he saw him all the time. He was always with his sister. He was always with his parents. He, they, the whole family was always together. And frankly, the Snyder family loved Jerry Wolman too. I mean, he, he was like a distant member of the family as well. Um, he, he was very charming. He was loved by everyone that met him. Uh, you know, it was it was really a, 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 you know, not not to sound all cliche, but in a city of brotherly love, this was a story of three brothers that were very close and loved each other between Woolman, Foreman and Snyder. They really they, they were they looked like the three of them together were just going to take Philadelphia by by storm. Um, essentially, um, and, and I won't go too into detail with it because, you know, I, I got to leave something for the readers to read. But there's a very, <laughs> very lengthy story about. Uh, Jerry Wolman's uh, financial issues stemming from a big problem with one of his projects in Chicago that eventually led to a very, very messy and acrimonious breakup between him and Snyder. And it led to a pretty acrimonious breakup between him and Foreman as well, because uh, Wolman ended up firing Snyder from the Eagles without checking with his business partner. Um, and Foreman and Snyder tried to sue him. They tried to go to the NFL to get the firing overturned. It was, it was a very messy divorce. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, Wolman, Wolman and Snyder were still kind of partners in the Flyers and the Spectrum. Uh, you know, that summer before Ed got fired from the Eagles, um, he he and Wolman did a, tr a basically a swapping of assets in order to stop being business partners because of this issue they had. So Ed ended up as uh, majority owner of the Flyers. Um, he initially he had the most shares, but he was not majority at the beginning. I believe off the top of my head, he had 25% at the start. Uh, Wolman had a smaller amount um, and the, the two of them both had shares in the spectrum. Well, Wolman ended up with 100% of the spectrum and Snyder ended up with a uh, majority of the flyers along with some other business partners. Um, and in the meantime, Foreman was kind of stuck in the middle here. Um, there's even a scene where he goes to Saul Snyder to say like, what am I supposed to do here? I've got my business partner and my brother-in-law that, and I'm stuck in the middle. And Saul's answer was blood is thicker than water. Um, you know, you always go with your family. And so that's why he eventually, uh, you know, casually um, supported Ed and defended Ed. You know, he and his wife 
remained friends with Jerry Wallman and his wife uh, for the rest of their lives, uh, which of course irked Ed because if you weren't with him, you were against him. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's, it's it's a very fascinating relationship because, like you said, Earl was Earl was front and center in a lot of these uh, different sports endeavors, uh, even after the Flyers era. Um, he ended up as a partial owner of the Spectrum for many years before Ed bought his share out. Um, he and Ed together. Uh, orchestrated the takeover of the Spectrum at a bankruptcy court when Wolman had to uh, file for bankruptcy and, and declare all of his assets. Um, and I, I believe the stat is that uh, Snyder and Foreman became the beneficiaries at the time of the largest bankruptcy in Pennsylvania history in which all of the creditors got paid in full, which, as you would know, is very unusual in a bankruptcy. So there, you know, the, the two of them together were a very strong team that even after the breakup with Wolman, they were able to still build something together. And, and uh, you know, Earl went on to do some of his own things. Um, you know, he and Ed, of course, remained very close until his uh, death a few years after Ed passed. Um, but, you know, they were they were like they were like real brothers. It wasn't just a brother in law relationship. They were like brothers and, and, and they worked together for many years. What was the Hancock Tower project in Chicago the source of the beginning of the end of the of and the, the teetering towards bankruptcy or was it something else? Yeah, for sure. It was it was that project um, essentially that after after the building was about a third built, it started settling it into the ground as if it was fully built, and they realized that the uh, the footings were poured incorrectly, and so they had to tear the entire building down and start from scratch. And Woolman didn't have the capital to to do that, and so basically it ruined him. Um, it was a very expensive project. It was, you know, tens of millions of dollars he reportedly lost on it. And, you know, I put all of his assets at risk, you know, the Eagles, the the Spectrum, everything he owned. Um, and it all, he tried very hard to keep the Eagles because it was, it was his dream to own them and he didn't want to give them up, but eventually he he was forced to pretty much put everything into bankruptcy. So tell me about this, the the ideation, before we get into sort of the post split and the flyers and all that stuff, the, the ideation of the spectrum and the pursuit of a, an expansion franchise in the NHL for Philadelphia. Cause that's part of the story as well, because it, it, this were you're talking about what 1966 or so, right. And the NHL had not expanded at that point. Right. As we've talked about uh, in previous discussion, right. Uh, um, uh, beyond the quote unquote original six, right. And Philadelphia had always been kind of nibbling around, never quite sort of, either ready or or deemed ready by the NHL or 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 the NHL conservatively still not wanting to look beyond the, the those six franchises that had coalesced since the war um what of the the dynamics around Philadelphia getting a franchise and and how much was a brand new building uh promised as part of that uh key to to getting that that uh, that designation that franchise so the so for the listeners that don't know the uh, Philadelphia had an NHL team in the early 1930s called the Quakers that was essentially a temporarily relocated team from Pittsburgh and they lasted one year they had arguably the worst season in NHL history and and they were they barely sold any tickets and then they were gone um they had an opportunity in the 40s to get a franchise when someone from Philadelphia attempted to get the rights to the Montreal Maroons that were defunct and build a new arena uh, at the former site of the Baker Bowl, and then the city didn't. This it got pretty much squashed by the city, uh, and then after that, they, you know, like you said, they nibbled around the edges. But the NHL was very conservative at the time. They were very happy with their six teams. They were successful. They were selling to almost one hundred percent capacity. They had very little interest in expansion. Uh, the impetus for the NHL suddenly realizing they had to expand because even in nineteen sixty five, Clarence Campbell, the NHL's president at the time 
said over and over again, we have no interest in expansion. It's, it's, not, it's out of the question. We have no desire for that. But they were looking for a TV contract because they realized when you're selling 100% of the seats, there's nowhere else to grow. You, you can't grow revenue other than just raising ticket prices, which was not something they would really want to do. Um, they met with uh, some TV executives and they were essentially told, well, the Western Hockey League has as much a chance of getting a TV deal as you guys do because you have six teams and a handful of them are in Canada. You have almost no American markets. The Western League at least is in California. They've got, they've got some of the big markets on, under them. So the NHL realized, oh man, if, if we're going to want to get this TV contract, we're going to have to add some teams. Uh, and it was, you know, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming, basically. Um, essentially, the, the Rangers president, uh, a guy by the name of Bill Jennings, uh, he was an entrepreneur like Ed was, and he saw the future. He said, we, you know, we have to expand. We need to grow the game. We can't just keep sitting in this small pond as big fish. We need to grow the game. And he was really the one that convinced the board of governors and the president to expand. So what they had agreed on was two teams in each, uh, in each region, two in the West, two in the central and two in the East. They knew they needed a team in the Bay area because they needed that market for their TV deal. And, uh, they, knew they needed to put a team in St. Louis because uh, one of the existing owners owned an arena there. And in order to get his vote for expansion, they said, well, we'll put, we'll put a team in St. Louis so you can sell the arena to someone. And, and then in exchange, he voted for expansion. You know, it's a lot of politics as, as expected. Uh, in the East, everyone was expecting Baltimore to get the second team after Pittsburgh. Um, and Baltimore had an existing arena and they had a very successful history of minor league hockey. And, when, uh, when Ed heard about uh, the expansion opportunity from uh, a former banker of his that was then working with Jack Kent Cook in LA for the Kings, um, Bill Putnam was his name, uh, Ed was like, huh, that would, that would be really interesting. Let me ask some questions. And they, they inquired, they met some people in New York and they essentially were told, yeah, it's a possibility. You know, Philly, it's not a great hockey city, but you know, you, you, we can accept an application and just ask that they keep it quiet uh, because LA had, you know, multiple suitors and it was making the price go up. He said, you know, if, if Philadelphia is going to get a franchise, it's going to be me, not anybody else. So they agreed to keep it quiet. Um, Ed realized that they were going to need a new building. He went to the city. He used his contacts, the same ones he used to get veteran stadium going. Uh, and they were thrilled with the idea. They said, well, look, you're already building in this section of the swamp. Why don't you build in the other section of the swamp? So uh, that's when they went south of Patterson Avenue and they, they specked out the spectrum, no pun intended. Um, and so essentially when they met with the NHL, the NHL was not thrilled with Philadelphia as a hockey town. They knew the history. They knew they had a, a, a so-so history of, of uh, successful minor league hockey. Uh, most of their success had come earlier in the 20s and the 30s. They hadn't had a ton of success uh, recently. But you know, the NHL is a business. It, it always was and it always will be. And essentially the, the building of the spectrum and the building of, a, of, a, of an arena that was going to hold 15,000 seats, which was more than Baltimore's arena held, was the deal breaker. And they, the NHL made no secret of the fact that it was just that arena that gave Philadelphia the edge over Baltimore. Um, Baltimore was the better city for it, according to the league, but Philadelphia could hold a few thousand more people and that was revenue for the league. And so for them, there was no question about it. Uh, it of course helps that Philadelphia is a large market, helped them with the TV contract, but you know, Baltimore's not a small market by any means. Uh, and so they named Philadelphia as the final franchise to be given out with Baltimore as the alternate figuring if something happened to one of the other franchises, Baltimore's there to step in. Um, 
So the spectrum was crucial. I mean, the, the, the Philadelphia would not have gotten an NHL franchise without the spectrum. If they were going to put it in some existing, if, if they were going to put it in the Philadelphia arena, which was, you know, dilapidated at the time, the NHL would never have signed off on that. They would have gone elsewhere. So it was, it was Ed and Jerry's idea to build the spectrum that pretty much guaranteed Philadelphia an NHL franchise. It also fits the theme of sort of cities uh, looking for one of the big four franchises as sort of a um, way to fill out other franchises, right? As a, um, you know, a mark of having made it, right? As a major league city, right? A Philadelphia looking in the shadows of uh, a New York City or Boston to the north or hell, even D.C., um, you know, getting uh, an NHL franchise and then, you know, with the the lure of a brand new building, um, I guess automatically or somewhat, uh, I guess in hindsight, right? The 76ers uh, probably come knocking on the door shortly thereafter and saying, hey, we'd love to be a tenant because we'd love to be in a new building as well, right? And that just cements, I guess, Philadelphia being an indoor uh, pro sports mecca uh, because of all this stuff. It almost feels perfect in, in retrospect. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, I'm not sure I can even add much. I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head perfectly there. How, how do you, um, how do you then, so how does the spectrum come into play? Uh, if I memory serves, it came together um, constructively or uh, construction wise pretty quickly and, and on time, I think, right? Well, it did, sure, but uh, it's probably because they cut a lot of corners. Um, that's, there you hence, go. That's, that's hence, what I was getting hence, to. Yeah. Hence the roof blowing off. Uh, you know, the, in the city archives, there's a really fascinating document uh, that 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 should be in the dictionary under the definition of foreshadowing, in which the contractor uh, gets an agreement from the uh, from the uh, planning board of Philadelphia to put it, what was called an economy roof on the spectrum. Uh, and they said that they had evidence that it was not going to be a problem because of the way they were going to build it and it wasn't going to be an issue. And of course, a few months after they opened, the roof blows off. So it's, it's, it's almost funny in retrospect at the time, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, but it, it's funny in retrospect to see how quickly they put that building together because they needed to have it ready for opening night. Um, in fact, I believe the Flyers had to cancel a preseason game because they didn't have any boards. Um, they, the the guy the contractor hadn't been paid or there was some issue where Ed actually had to bribe a union guy to get the boards delivered in order to have them installed for the first game. Um, if you look at photos from that inaugural home game, the scoreboard was just a shell. There was nothing in it because they didn't have enough time to build it properly. They they skipped wall paint around the building. They skipped so many steps because they had to get the building open and they figured that they would just upgrade it with time, which they did. You know, Within a few years, they added a third deck with thousands of seats. They upgraded the building a little bit. But, you know, in 66, 67, they were just rushing to get this done as quickly as humanly possible. And so they certainly cut a lot of corners that today would never have been allowed. But back then you could get away with. All right. Well, you, you the, the title of the book is The Last Mogul. And I guess I'm really so it's clear that that there's sort of a twin uh, set of stories here with 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 Snyder in, in this period of time. One is the flyers and the other is the building and the spectrum. Um, how parallel or entwined are they, or what part, I guess, of moguldom uh, sort of uh, allows him to get that title? Is is it the the building, and then what becomes off of that leveraged into Spectacore, or would you call it also, or maybe separately, or only, really the 
the quick ascent of the Flyers, 1974, winning the championship pretty, pretty darn fast in, in modern day terms. Um, or, or I guess, I guess the, the, the easy answer is, is it both? So it, it's certainly both from my perspective, the title of the last sports mogul is mostly uh, from the business side. Um, when I say the last sports mogul, what I mean by that is there were plenty of people before Ed who made their living and made their fortune on a sports team. But it's very hard to find someone after him that did that. At the, for sure, at this stage, you need to be independently wealthy already in order to become an owner of a sports team. I mean, to, the, the last expansion franchise in the NHL went for $650 million. Nobody's going to the bank and getting a $650 million loan, nor is the NHL allowing someone in to their ownership group who doesn't have money to support a franchise. At the time, Ed had nothing to his name. He had a house with a mortgage, and he... Uh, and that was pretty much it. I mean, he, he didn't have any other assets. He went to a bunch of family members, friends, banks, and got a ton of loans. He put a second mortgage on his home and he was a few million dollars in debt and started this hockey franchise. Uh, and then by the end of his life, he created, he, he was worth, uh, I believe the figure was two and a half billion or something like that. Now you can't really point. It's very hard to point to anybody after Ed who started with nothing and made their money with a sports franchise. That is such a such an unusual story. Most people had a side business or something else that earned them a living, like Jerry Woolman. Jerry Woolman was a very, very successful developer. That's where he made his money. He bought the Eagles and and continued to grow his uh, his uh, his wealth from there. Uh, Ed started with nothing. In fact, he was still worth nothing years after the Flyers were successful because he had so much debt. It was actually worth the debt was worth more than the Flyers were worth. So, um, so in terms of calling him a mogul, to be able to take something like that and build it into what he built it from, what he built it into, which was, you know, the business that's, businesses that encompass Spectacore that eventually merged with Comcast to, to become Comcast Spectacore, I, I think that's what I'm referring to. Um, you know, the flyers in the spectrum were certainly the core of the business, um, but they were by far all of it. They were by far not all of it. Uh, they, you know, they built out uh, an arena management company, a ticketing company, a merchandising company, a, a radio network, a sports network. They, they had so many, they had Spectacore films for a few years. They had so much to that business that just kept growing. Uh, and that a lot of that was uh, Ed's entrepreneurial vision. You know, right now, if you look at ownership and, and corporate structure of, of uh, sports teams, specifically hockey teams, they have all of these businesses intertwined. Most of them do already. But in 1967 and in the 70s, nobody was doing that. It was just an NHL franchise, and that was it. It was just a standalone business. Ed, Ed was one of the first people to come up with the idea of building businesses on top of each other. And like spokes of a wheel, they all supported one another, and working together grew the pie. It also helped him understand that you know if the hockey team had a bad year or a couple of bad years, he wasn't in trouble because he had all of these other businesses that were supporting the entirety of the company. So, you know, if the flyers had a lean few years, if attendance dropped a little bit, he could still support the team. He could still cover the finances required to run the team uh, because, you know, it's no secret that the flyers were his passion. They were the core of what he loved most. He put everyone else in charge 
of running the other businesses, but he always wanted to remain somewhat involved with the Flyers. Uh, I'll be at arm's length, but he always wanted to stay involved with the Flyers because that's what he loved. He loved going to the games. He loved interacting with the fans. He loved expressing his passion for the team. He loved the fans' passion for the team, the city's passion for the team, but it's those other businesses that allowed that team to continue to exist even through the tough times. All right, what's this? Prize picks. My goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, I just literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, they're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, how about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, in basketball, that could be three-point uh, shot attempts made, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes and you can choose and mix and match sports as well you don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport no you can pick a couple of players in across different sports and boy oh boy when i say different sports prize picks has a wide variety it's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the nfl and major league baseball all the way into various niche sports 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 no sports like mma or disc golf uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun. And you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And, of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to prizepicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com, and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the Prize Picks app and get that instant deposit match right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, Prize Picks. And now back to our conversation. Yeah, we had uh, we had Lou Scheinfeld on uh, last year. Um, and clearly there was a relationship there too in which uh, I guess Lou was kind of more of the kind of get it done guy while Ed was kind of sort of the the builder guy uh, as it relates to the spectrum and the various pieces that sort of emanated out of that. Do I kind of have that right? Or is that relationship more 
confusing or or convoluted than I just described. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, like any business owner, Ed employed a lot of uh, vice presidents and, and, and managers at that time. Lou was a very essential part of the Flyers in those early years. As the business grew, of course, there were many, many more people that were helping build that company. But for sure, in the early years, Lou was definitely very important to Ed and, and, a, and a very strong advisor to him the first few years. Um, what kinds of other businesses, you kind of alluded to them, but but uh, they're not just sort of like a, a just uh, uh, random. I, it almost seems like they were very either on purpose or maybe uh, by happenstance or somewhere in between synergistic to this spectrum thing and the programming for it, either related to it or uh, outside of it. Uh, but it almost seemed like it was almost strategically almost brilliant in, in hindsight. Sure. And, and it, it was not, I don't believe it was intentional by any means at the beginning, at least. I think as, as time progressed and the company grew, it certainly became a, a lot more intentional. But at the beginning, his goal was just to make a successful hockey franchise and a successful arena. And fill uh, the building know. with with dates, right? Oh, of, of course. And, and so, you know, you have the Flyers as tenants. That's only 41 dates a year. You add the Sixers in, that's 82 total dates a year. You have almost 300 more days where you've got to fill this building to pay for it. You know, there was, a, I believe, an $8 million mortgage out on the building when they took it out of bankruptcy. That's not going to get paid on its own. Uh, and so they made a very, very uh, cognizant effort to fill this building with every possible event they could. And they were one of the first arenas in the country to do that. They booked everything, um, ballets, uh, circus, uh, ice shows. The ice capades were one of the biggest ones. They had jazz festivals. They had concerts. They, they had so many events, and the building was filled all the time. It was one of the hottest arenas in the country. So because of that, they're selling so many tickets. Okay, they need to create some sort of technology for uh, selling tickets more efficiently and distributing them more efficiently. Okay, now they have to come up with a concession uh, plan. How, how do you sell merchandise and concessions more efficiently in a building on this many nights? How do you change over the ice to a basketball court and vice versa? How do you, there, there were so many questions that came from managing all of this and most other cities did not have to deal with this. So they were on their own in figuring this out. From there, as other cities and other arenas started seeing how successful the spectrum was, they would literally reach out to Spectacor, and, which was its management company that oversaw all of the businesses, um, they would reach out and say, you know, can you help us out? Can you maybe consult with us? Could you run our arena? And at the beginning, Ed was like, no, 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 we've got enough to do. We've got enough to do. And after, after turning them down, I believe it was Nassau Coliseum that kept coming to them first uh, up in Long Island. And after a few times of turning them down, he had to kind of step back and say, well, wait, that's not what an entrepreneur does. You know, a constant in Ed's life was, what would an entrepreneur do? You know, if, if there was a, something that he was saying no to, but in reality, it was a smart business move. He had to always take a step back and say, why am I saying no to this? An entrepreneur doesn't say no to a good business idea. And so eventually he was like, well, maybe we should be doing this. Maybe we should be managing some other people's buildings. So that's where they start doing arena management. And then they get, you know, one, two, five, 10, 20 clients. At some point, I think Global Spectrum, which is what it was called at uh, after the Comcast partnership, I believe they had uh, a few hundred buildings they were operating throughout the country at some point. It was the biggest part of the business. Um, so you get that, you get the concession stands, which then can manage other concession stands around the country. You have a ticketing software, which can manage other ticketing softwares around the country. So you've got this, this collection of businesses that really were created just to run the Spectrum in his own business that he then realized could be uh, broadened 
uh, and grown to run other places uh, of similar style around the country. And that's where you get this massive growth in this corporation that then becomes what Comcast Spectacor is today. And they're still doing all of that today. Yeah, and and that um, probably aided and abetted. I'm, I'm sure Prism, the cable uh, channel, or the, uh, uh, I guess it was called a subscription, subscription TV service at the time, um, was part of that WIP, the radio station. I mean, there's all these sort of things that are not so tangentially related that that just aid and abet all of it, right? Promotion, uh, uh, you know, uh, the television and, and the subscription version of, of such, if you can't get to the actual arena. And I'm sure, frankly, almost a, um, what seems like, if you look at the, uh, the pro sports tenants history of the spectrum, almost a, uh, a license to uh, help uh, begin uh, or underline uh, the importance or, or create some uh, validation for, any fledgling league that's looking for uh, an indoor place to play, such as World Team Tennis with the Freedoms or the the, the National Lacrosse League of the mid-70s. And hell, the MISL, uh, Mr. Foreman in particular, and, and even the indoor soccer uh, proof point even earlier than that with the Adams playing the uh, the Soviet team there. So the the, the spectrum, this, this arena, certainly in the 70s at least, uh, was almost a mecca of sorts for all kinds of sports uh, inventions that were sort of going on around there. Absolutely. It was, it was a gateway and it was, it was, you know, it was such an impetus for success of all levels, whether it was Ed, whether it was, like you said, a team that was able to play there. It was such a crucial part of Philadelphia, uh, for so many years. And it really helped the city's sports image become what it is today. How does he move along then with this company? Because, um, it's clear that that for for a bunch of years, the '70s in particular, uh, the Spectrum was the indoor showcase. I guess it was called America's Showplace, right? right. Uh, concerts and stuff too. The the acoustics were really good. Um, but but fast forward from from all of that because uh, politics, the city, uh, the aging arena, or the shall we say, uh, quickly constructed arena, didn't sort of uh, <laughs> hang on or last all that long, and it. In today's terms, right, 20 years, I guess, is uh, it's kind of a, a, a leisurely pace for the uh, the lifetime of an arena. Um, what happens? Because there, that whole complex down there in that part of Philadelphia, um, it, it seems like it was in the crosshairs of the city and maybe the teams itself. And the spectrum wasn't sort of looking wet, better for the wear, shall we say. Right. So it, it it kind of started when the Sixers owner, Harold Katz, who had constantly butt heads with uh, Harold Katz started uh, poking around other areas, looking for a new arena for himself and for the Sixers. Frankly, he was tired of paying rent to, uh, right, to he's a tenant. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and he wanted to be able to make his own money on the concessions. You know what? What a lot of people may not understand about sports businesses, you know, currently for the Sixers, if you're a tenant of Comcast, who owns the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, you don't make most of the money there. You get your tickets, you get your ticket revenue. Uh, but you know, the, the arena generally keeps most of the concession sales, a lot of the merchandise sales, the, the suite sales. So there's a lot of revenue that you miss out on by just being a tenant. So the Sixers were looking for that revenue. It's, it, you know, it's, it's easy money. If you can, if you can have your own arena, 
Uh, so he started uh, talking to New Jersey and, Cam and Camden and, and the Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania governments. Um, and Ed was, of course, trying to keep his tenant. He didn't want to lose 41 days a year uh, of, of revenue for himself. So, um, you know, he and Harold Katz had a very tough relationship from about the late 80s to the, to the mid 90s when they finally got shovels in the ground for, the, for what became Core State Center. Uh, and it was a huge political football between Philadelphia and Camden. At one point, Ed made it seem like he was willing to move to camp, move the Flyers to Camden, though everyone in his inner circle knew that that wasn't going to happen. Um, he, but he never straight out threatened to leave. He just, you know, would sh conspicuously show up in the news touring a new site in Camden kind of thing. Um, just to remind uh, the politicians in Philadelphia, hey, you know, I need you, but you also need me a little bit. Um, and, you know, he, he really... Just like, just like it, it, it was a lot of his doing and in, in his mortgaging his life back in the 60s to get the Flyers started and the Spectrum uh, bailed out of bankruptcy, it was the same thing with him in the 90s. He struggled for so many years to get that project going. You know, 30, almost 30 years had passed since they built the Spectrum. And, uh, you know, obviously there were more laws and regulations. There were tighter financial regulations. Uh, it was much harder for him to get loans from a bank, even though he was worth you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. He multiple times had loans fall through because of one little thing that couldn't get fixed. And at one point he was almost ready to throw the whole thing away. Um, you know, he had an agreement with, uh, with Prudential for uh, a huge, uh, you know, almost half billion dollar loan, I believe it was on the, uh, uh, on the core state center on what would have become the core state center. Uh, and he had mortgaged everything, every, literally every asset he owned, except for his Stanley Cup rings, which he was not willing to put on the bank sheet. Um, he, he put every home, every piece of art, his plane, everything he owned, he put up in order to get uh, this loan. Uh, and uh, one last second, they asked for one more thing. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll PG it. He said, you know, screw this, we're done. Uh, before finally someone kind of slapped him silly and was like, you got to just deal with it. This is what's going to happen if you want to get this built. You know, again, long story short, he came to an agreement with Harold Katz. He was able to get the mortgage and and, and get the arena going. Um, and you know, very soon thereafter, Comcast came calling, and they they ended up merging together, or Comcast ended up acquiring the majority stake of the team and the arena, et cetera. Uh, and they kind of grew from there. But wasn't he uh, looking? Wasn't the tentative name of this new construction going to be Spectrum Two? That was more the name of the project. Um, sure. The only, the only, re that wasn't necessarily going to be the name of the building. They hadn't really decided on it yet. But what happened was towards the end of the construction project, they were about $15 million short, I believe, something like that. And Ed was tapped out. He could not get another loan and, and they needed the money to finish the building. And so at the time, there weren't a lot of naming rights for sports arenas, but as Ed, as was typical for Ed, he decided, well, I'm going to try something new. And he went out and tried to see if he could get a corporation to pay him $15, $20 million to put their name on the building so he could finish the building. That's that's the main reason you ended up with the Core State Center. He, he wasn't necessarily looking to uh, to make bank off of a corporate name. It was that the building literally couldn't be finished because he didn't have the money. And he wasn't willing to take public funds. He was not willing to take money from the city of Philadelphia. Uh, he wasn't willing to take taxpayer money. And he had no choice, basically. Uh, and so he met with a bunch of companies. Uh, both Verizon and Core States were willing to give him the money he needed. Uh, they get, they all get, they offered an upfront payment for, I believe it was 25 years of naming rights or 30 years of naming rights, which were coming up on, interestingly enough. Um, and 
he and his wife decided that core state center sounded better than Verizon center. And so they signed with the bank. Um, and you know, it's, again, it's just one of those examples of his entrepreneurial mind, uh, trying to figure out a way around a problem. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and almost in the vanguard. Now, of course, the, the, the then, uh, core states then, uh, through banking consolidation, I mean, the names and the rights changed and, and that name, uh, they, 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 there was absolutely a cottage business in, uh, in signage, uh, updates and stuff around that arena because the first union and Wachovia and then Wells Fargo and all that stuff. But uh, that's, um, but it, as, a, have- as, as a, as a side note, real quick, yeah. it's funny because at the time when they signed a deal, the bank had asked Ed, if he would allow a clause in there that allowed them to change the name of the building up to five times in <laughs> case of mergers and acquisitions. And he kind of looked at them funny and was like, uh, all right, sure. Like that, that seems weird, but fine, whatever. You know, like that's not going to happen. And sure enough, they've used, I believe three of them. <laughs> five times. That's, I mean, that's that I get, I'm, I'm wondering if that was prescient or just kind of some, some legal person on the team, just trying to, you know, stand out and look fancy, but um, yeah, who, know, but, who knows, but indicative, I guess, of really of a, of a fast consolidating banking industry and, and pretty, uh, uh, pretty insightful for sure that 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 was the case but you could imagine if that hadn't been in there that clause right it could have been a real conundrum especially in the early 90s when uh those or the late 90s when those uh, you know those loans had to be eventually repaid right yeah and uh and the bank had paid up front for it so likely if they weren't able to change the name i'm just guessing here they would have been left without a building name basically and and would have still had his money so when does Comcast come into the picture? Was he essentially selling uh, the SpectraCore uh, 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 ownership or, or majority ownership? Uh, was that prior to, was that sort of part of the fundraising part for this new arena? Or was that just sort of uh, a side part of, of the overall story? No, that was completely independent. Ed was not looking to sell anything, honestly. Um, he was very happy. He, he had no desire to retire. He was very happy with what he was doing. Um, and he knew he had no kids involved in the business after uh, his son, Jay, left the organization in the early 90s. All of his kids had at some point worked for him in the organization. But in all fairness, he was not an easy man to work for, especially when you were a member of the family. He he expected a lot. Uh, he was a, he was a world class second guesser. He was difficult to work with for a lot of people, especially his kids. Um, and so he was on a, he was on his own. He was very happy to just be running the organization by himself. Um, but what happened was. Uh, a guy named Pat Croce, who Philadelphia Philadelphians would know very well. Sure. Uh, he was looking to buy the Sixers from Harold Katz. Now, uh, a long story short, essentially, Pat didn't have the money to buy the team outright. He had the money to invest a little bit in the team, but he needed a bigger buyer. Somehow he got connected with Comcast and Comcast, uh, the Roberts family, um, Brian Roberts and his dad, Ralph, uh, we're, we're friendly with Ed. Uh, Ralph and Ed went way back, and Brian, you know, as the son and currently the CEO of Comcast, they, they knew Ed. They went way back. They weren't close friends, but they knew each other. They'd seen each other at business events a lot. There's even a scene that, unfortunately, I couldn't get more than one perspective on, but there was a scene sometime in the 80s where Ed, Ralph Roberts, and a bunch of other big shots in the city got together to try to do something like this earlier because they saw how it would benefit each, each of them. But pretty much everyone who was going to put an asset into this pie wanted their asset to be the most important piece. And it just fizzled out. It didn't work. So it's ironic that, you know, about a decade later, they called Ed and they were like, hey, you know, we're looking to buy the Sixers, but the Sixers aren't very valuable to us by themselves. 
Um, you know, Comcast's interest wasn't in running a sports team. They wanted to create Comcast Sportsnet. They saw the potential in regional sports, uh, a regional sports network. And so being based in Philadelphia, they wanted to test it out in Philadelphia. They saw the success that Ed had with Prism and they wanted to do it on their own. But in order to do so, they needed to get at least two of the four teams, if not three. They knew they weren't going to get the Eagles because football was too big of a pie. They had their own national TV contract and nobody was touching that. So they said, well, you know, we have, we can maybe get the Sixers, but that's not enough. You know, we, that's, that's 82 nights a year on our network. We have 365 nights we need to fill up. So how are we going to do this? And that's when they basically gave Ed a call. Um, you know, they knew that Ed and Harold were never going to, Harold Katz were never going to negotiate uh, with each other. So Comcast essentially acted as an intermediary. And they said, you know, what would it take to, to buy the team, uh, to buy the, the arena uh, and, you know, partner with you. Um, and so, Ed was, you know, intrigued by the idea. You know, as I said, he's an entrepreneur. He never said no to anything off the bat. He was always interested in hearing someone out. Um, but he wasn't really interested in selling the Flyers. You know, it's his baby. He always called it that. He had really no interest in basketball either. You know, he was he was maybe interested from a business perspective, but he, you know, he 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 didn't really have a care for it. Um, he, he tried very hard during his ownership of the Sixers, but he just couldn't develop a love for the game. And uh, essentially, he got in a room with uh, with Brian Roberts and the legal counsel on both sides, and they talked some ideas over, and he liked the ideas. And then when the Roberts left the room to talk something over amongst themselves, Ed was talking with his advisor, and he was like, you know, I don't really want to sell the team. You know, this is a really great business opportunity, but I'm not interested in selling the team. And when Brian came back in the room, he said, look, Brian, I'm not interested in, in selling. I, like, I want to work with you, but I'm not interested in selling. And Brian was like, you know, that's great, because we don't want to fully buy you out. So essentially, it was a deal where the two of them wanted the other one involved still. Neither of them wanted the other one gone. Ed still wanted to run the Flyers, and Comcast really didn't want to run the Flyers. They wanted to have control of the business aspect of it, but they didn't want to run the team. They didn't want to have that appearance that a, a faceless corporation was running a hockey franchise that was so beloved to the city. And so they essentially crafted this deal, which is very unique and Comcast never before and has never since crafted a deal like this where Comcast uh, became in this new endeavor then called Comcast Spectacor. Uh, Comcast became a two thirds uh, owner, majority owner of the team with controlling interest. However, Ed held the controlling interest in the team as the managing partner, which means Comcast owned the majority of an entity for which they did not technically have managerial control. And they have never done that before with all of their acquisitions they'd made, and they've never done that since. And, and you know, one might ask why they would do such a thing. You know, did Ed outfox them or did? And the answer is no. They just the Robertses and 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 Snyder had such a deep trust of each other. They knew that neither side was going to try to screw the other. They, you know, they of course put all the safeguards in place. You know, each could buy the other one out at any given time. Um, which essentially meant Comcast could buy him out because Ed wasn't going to have the money to buy out the other two thirds of this insanely huge organization that they were creating. But Ed wanted to keep running the team and Comcast wanted him to run the team. Philadelphia loved Ed Snyder. Um, you know, even in, even uh, up in the, the, uh, the turn of the 21st century, uh, his, his opinion polls were fantastic. He had a huge 
uh, not to use a political term, but he had a, he had a hugely positive approval rating. You know, there's always a subset of people that didn't like him or thought that he meddled or whatever, but Philadelphia as a whole really loved Ed. They loved his passion. They loved how he was willing to try so hard to win uh, for him and the fans. They loved how he treated the organization like it was his, but also fully acknowledged it wasn't his organization. It was the city's organization. And he was just kind of holding the reins right now before someone else took over one day. It, it was Philadelphia's team and he could never forget that. And he made sure the city never forgot that. So people loved Ed Snyder. They had a trust for him of, of, of running this team. So, you know, he didn't go into the Comcast deal looking to get rid of anything. He was more just, it piqued his interest, but it worked out for him because, you know, it got rid of this massive debt he had on the, on the arena. It got rid of a lot of the financial stress he had and still being a single person running this multi hundred million dollar organization, whereas other teams at this point had big businesses behind them. So to get Comcast backing was really an enormous, uh, an enormous piece of allowing them to grow even further and to become the size that they are now. Well, and essentially this new building essentially allows it to be a mogul all over again, right? I mean, you, the Flyers, the 76ers, I mean, all the influence of, 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 of helping Philadelphia still stay relevant and, and modern uh, in, in the, the entertainment space when it comes to the uh, indoor variety um, and it also, it's interesting to me, it seems like, um, it's also a Philadelphia story, not to sort of, uh, you know, strain that, that, uh, that title too, but it, it's very much, uh, it seems like it's entwined with, um, you know, almost the civic, uh, culture uh, of Philadelphia, right. Without, uh, Ed Snyder. I mean, I think arguably, uh, a whole lot of the, um, uh, sports culture for sure. And, and maybe sort of the broader culture in, in Philadelphia would, uh, uh, wouldn't be near what it is uh, known for today. Certainly, and that has to do both with his, both with his business uh, decisions, the Flyers, and also his philanthropical work. I mean, even forgetting the Ed Snyder Youth Hockey Foundation for a moment, uh, he was charitable from the '70s onward. Even when he didn't have a lot of money, he was always charitable. You know, his father would regularly give money away to people, money he didn't have. He was just raised to be generous and to give away what you can to other people because there's always someone less fortunate than yourself. And so he was regularly supporting um, all various pieces of, of, of charitable organizations in the city, um, ultimately uh, ending up with the creation of Snyder Hockey, which is a huge organization right now. And it's one, and just so you and your listeners know, a portion of the proceeds of this book actually are going to Snyder Hockey. Uh, it's something that Ed would probably have wanted because as proud as he was of the Flyers, he was so beyond proud of Snyder Hockey and what has and what it has done for the city of Philadelphia. And in the six years since he's passed, it's, it's you know, it's it's multiplied in size. They really have done incredible, incredible work in trying to, uh, get kids in the inner city of Philadelphia to stay in school, to graduate high school, to go to college. They're getting, they're getting kids hockey scholarships so they can attend college and, and uh, develop real life skills so they can go out into the world and be successful. Uh, and that was, you know, it, it was Ed's vision for that to happen one day. And so he had such an immense impact on Philadelphia, even forgetting what he did with the Flyers and, and with Spectacor. I mean, the, his legacy if the I, I think I say at the end of the book, if the Flyers shut down tomorrow, his legacy would still be so incredibly felt throughout the city for many, many years because of his charitable work. And I think it's important to recognize both of that. He was an entrepreneur, certainly. He, you know, he always said money isn't the reason, it's the reward. He was very successful successful at what he did. And so he was obviously very, very wealthy, but he never he there's there's no 
decision he ever made where it looks like he did it for the money. He always was doing it to build something and because he was passionate about something. And in fact, he sold the Sixers because he wasn't passionate about them. He knew that if he held on to the Sixers, he could sell them for more money later, but he just wasn't passionate about the team. And he's like, well, how can I own a company that I, that I'm not passionate about? I need to love what I do. And so, it, you know, he's got some great lessons for entrepreneurs, for people in business, you know, anyone that thinks it's always about the money. It's not money is the reward. You have to love what you do. You have to have a passion for what you do. And most importantly, you have to give back to those that are in need. And, and Ed has a lot of those lessons in there for everyone. It almost seems with the exception of perhaps the Phillies that um, uh, the, he's probably uh, an essential, if not the essential thread for sports in Philadelphia from what the sixties through uh, most of the, the, the late aughts. Yes, certainly. And in fact, and, the and legacy from the, ever since, right. Still oh, with, sure. the, with that center still existing for sure. And uh, you know, his connection with the Phillies is that he was, I believe he was the one that when they were creating Comcast sports net in the nineties around that Comcast deal um, you know, obviously the flyers and the Sixers were guaranteed to be on that network since they were owned by Comcast, but the, Phillies were the, the last little bit they had to get. And I believe Ed was instrumental in getting the Phillies to agree to join that network and, and, and leave their existing TV deal. Uh, and so pretty much before they even created the network, Ed had three of the four major sports teams in Philadelphia on Comcast Sportsnet before they had even started a broadcast. It, it, yeah, it's interesting. It, it sounds a lot like what Ted Leonsis is doing in D.C., uh, Absolutely. It, and Ted Leonsis is probably the closest thing to Ed Snyder still around in the sports world. I mean, how he grew that business is so unbelievably respectable. I mean, he, he, I've, I've never had the opportunity to meet him, but you know, he seems like such a wonderful charitable person as well, always gives back to the city of DC. Um, and in fact, Ed, Ed was probably very close with him having grown up in DC. Ed was always visiting Washington because he had family there still. So I'm sure Ted and Ed, having served on the board of governors for many years together, were very close friends. Yeah, very interesting. And it's also a model, right? I mean, the fact that, uh, I mean, it just seems like those pieces are coming together. And, and I don't know if it's a throwback or maybe um, a, a retro look at perhaps where the future is going, right? Because, um, you know, it, it's like a, uh, a local monopoly in some respects, right? I mean, and I don't, maybe with small case letter M, you know, in that you, you synergize uh, uh, the media components, the, the stuff that fills the pipes uh, and the arenas and the arenas themselves, right? There's a lot of, especially now you throw big data in and all that, all the technology and stuff. It just seems like you can uh, be more efficient uh, and more uh, uh, augmentative, uh, augmentative with, uh, you know, assets and, and things that are, you know, in the, in the same geographical region and uh, really have no other place to go. And that's, that sounds like a pretty damn good business. Yeah. And Ed, from a, from a young uh, business age, I should say, you know, from his twenties, he understood the importance of controlling the distribution of his sports team. So that's where you get prism because he didn't want the fate of his, of, of the public facing portion of his team to be in control of someone else. He wanted to be able to control that distribution. Who's going to see my team? How are they going to see my team? He was really, he was a brilliant marketer is what he was. And he learned that as a, from a young age, working in his father's grocery store, he learned how to properly present things. He learned to, you know, it, it sounds, uh, it sounds comical, but he learned how to properly stack produce in an attractive way so that people would, would go to this stack instead of this stack. He learned how to properly uh, showcase product to people. And so he used that knowledge in sports. How do I 
show this team to the city? How do I show this team to a national audience? How do we have to change things around if we're on a national TV channel versus a regional TV channel? How, what do we have to do to control and heighten the distribution of that team? And, and that's where a lot of his success came from was understanding how to present to the community, uh, which, you know, a pretty big community in Philadelphia, but he really got it from a marketing perspective. All right. Last question then, uh, because the spectrum is such a big part of this story and then the, and the, uh, now the, the, the Wells Fargo Center is a big part of the story. Um, what is your sense of what happens next when it comes to uh, the current arena and what is likely to be at some point, because it's getting old, you know, it's 20, 30 years old now. Um, what do you think is next for Philadelphia indoor arena and sports and stuff? Um, it doesn't sound like the family is uh, involved anymore. What do you just generally think is next for Philadelphia when it comes to, say, an indoor arena for uh, one or both of these uh, major franchises, uh, which are clearly housed now together? But what do you think it's going to go next? So uh, Comcast recently put in over the last few years close to a half a billion dollars. Uh, they basically piece by piece gutted the Wells Fargo Center and rebuilt it from the inside. So if you go inside, if someone hasn't been there for maybe five years and goes inside, it looks like a completely new arena. Um, so instead of basically building a new arena, they fixed up the existing one and they, they, they did everything from the public facing sides to the areas that no one's ever going to see. They updated everything. And it's really, it's really a state of the art arena right now. Um, there's obviously a lot of news recently about the Sixers looking to build a new arena in center city, Philadelphia, uh, in Chinatown, who knows where that's going to go. They, they've gone this route before and you know, I'm, I'm not a politician. I, I don't know how that's going to go, if it's going to be successful or not. Um, but you know, Comcast is, seems very set on, on the Wells Fargo center. You know, you don't put that kind of money into, into out, re-outfitting a building, uh, refitting a building, uh, if you don't plan to be there for a very long time. Um, there's also that spot where the spectrum used to stand. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk that they're going to put uh, a gaming arena there. You know, the Philadelphia Fusion is a huge part of Comcast Spectacore right now. And uh, it, they look to be trying to put an arena there to house them. Um, that, you know, gaming is very, very big now in, in the sports world. Um, so there, there's a lot of coals in the fire. And, you know, Comcast get, does get a bad rap uh, by the fans right now. And I, and I understand that, you know, it's, it's the, the team's going through a very tough time in the Flyers right now, and they know it. Um, and what I would say about that portion of it looking forward is um, they they know they understand that this isn't this isn't a blind company. You know, it's it, it's very easy to look at a corporation from the outside, a big one like Comcast and say, oh, they don't care. They just care about the money. That That's not true. The the people I've spoken with are in, intensely concerned about what's going on with the Flyers organization and about the perception. And they are actively working on trying to make that better. And honestly, a lot of those, a lot of that is learned from Ed, you know, Ed's, Ed's tenure, it's easy to look back at it with uh, rose colored glasses and say, oh, it was 50 years of, of, of peaches and cream. It, it wasn't, there were a lot of really tough years. There were a lot of years that he just was angry and upset night after night when the team was struggling, when business was struggling, when there was a problem, um, but you know, he always found a way to turn it around. Um, and he always found a way to get back to basics and, you know, a lot of the public may not see it yet. You know, someone, someone understanding what's going on in the inside is starting to see, would start to see a little bit of the pieces going into place, but the public will soon see 
how Comcast is working to regain the trust of the fans and to really fix any of the issues that are there. Uh, and I'm talking about from the business side, you know, the, the, the hockey side is always run separately than the business side. And that's always been true. And that's still true in any uh, sports organization. I'm talking about the business side now from a marketing standpoint and a cultural standpoint, they are trying very hard. And, 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 you know, I know the people running that organization and they're, they're going to get it. They're going to get it turned in the right direction for sure. So what do you think Snyder's legacy is? I think you've kind of nibbled around it. Uh, and, and is there any um, physical uh, presence or memory uh, or, uh, you know, uh, recognition of his, uh, his contributions anywhere, either in the arena or in the city or, 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 or elsewhere? So there is a statue uh, just below his former office uh, outside on the uh, on the the outside concourse of the uh, of the uh, Wells Fargo Center, uh, and uh, you know the, one of the one of the things that people do is they walk by and they rub his Stanley Cup ring for good luck. Uh, there is a there's a mural of him that went up in Kensington, uh, which is one of the areas where Snyder Hockey pulls a lot of their uh, of their students from. Um, and there, there's a lot of things around that have his name on it. Um, he wasn't one to flaunt his name. He really didn't put his name on anything. You know, the company name was Spectacorn, not Snyder Co. Um, and the only things he put his name on was the Ed Snyder Youth Hockey Foundation and the Snyder Center, which is part of the business, it's a center for capitalism studies at University of Maryland, his alma mater. Um, his legacy should be entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you can say what you want about his success or lack thereof in the later years with the Flyers, um, but he was an entrepreneur at, at the end of the day, and he was about building businesses and building companies, um, and then eventually giving back when he could. Um, you know, a, a, the bulk of his fortune when he died was left to charitable endeavors, whether it was Snyder Hockey, the family still runs the Snyder Foundation, where they give away millions of dollars every year. Um, and, you know, so he he was a brilliant business mind, um, despite his many flaws, as all of us do, all of us have them. Uh, he had many flaws, but he was a brilliant business mind. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit and that passion should be his legacy. And anybody that worked with him knows that it was the passion that drove him every day. He always came to work excited about what was next. What can we do next? What can we do more? Uh, and that's something that anybody that worked with him certainly learned. And I think the city, I think that's why the city respected him so much was because no matter what he did, even if he failed at something, he did it with passion and he did it with 100% effort. And that's really, at the end of the day, what Philadelphia asks for. All right. Terrific conversation. Thank you, Alan. Uh, and uh, pleased as punch to have had you back. Uh, and the book, of course, is a must-get. It is called Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. Depending on when you're listening to this, it is uh, either available tomorrow, wherever good books are found, or it is available now, wherever good books are found. Either way, just go get it. Uh, you can go to our website for most convenient uh, pathways. Uh, and uh, it's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 278. It'll probably be there right on the front page if you're listening to this uh, in pattern this week. And uh, you'll find a convenient link or two uh, to Amazon where you'll be whisked away and the book will come to you probably as fast as anybody on the planet can deliver it to you. It is published by Triumph Books. And um, while you're there, why don't you also grab a copy of 
uh, Alan's uh, other uh, book that uh, we talked about on uh, uh, episode 190 called Professional Hockey in Philadelphia History puts everything in context for you. And then while you're also there, why don't you also pick up uh, a copy of Lou Scheinfeld's book from our episode 241 called Blades, uh, Bands, and Ballers, How Flash and Cash Rescued the Flyers and Created Philadelphia's Greatest Showplace. All of those books would look uh, handsome together on your bookshelf and uh, would uh, uh, dramatically increase uh, your knowledge about Philadelphia sports history. I think we'll have you covered there for a good portion of it. Uh, and you can thank me later. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Bass Writing. It's Alan, A-L-A-N, Bass, B-A-S-S, Writing. You can also follow him on Instagram at the same, Alan Bass Writing. And of course, you can follow him on his website too at, what do you think? AlanBassWriting.com. See what he did there? Fantastic. While you're on the web or on your mobile device, Bookmark and re- return regularly to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Don't forget the two S's in between there, goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our episodes, both past, present, and future, will be found there. Of course, the best way to get and ensure that you have every episode is to find us, follow us, and or uh, subscribe to us, whatever the dynamic is, on your favorite podcast player slash device-ish thing, app, whatever. Um, We publish every week, usually around uh, late Sunday nights, early Monday mornings. Uh, And uh, of course, you can rate and review us uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else ratings are allowed. Five stars, greatly appreciated. And uh, what else? You can follow us on, uh, on uh, on the social media feeds too. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Facebook, you'll find a little page devoted to us as well. Email is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And thank you to Jerry Payne again for your uh, weekly chores. Uh, well done, as always. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. And um, of course, we can't do this without you, the listener. Uh, our great appreciation once again for uh, tolerating another fun-filled, at least for us, episode. Um, thank you again for listening. Until next week, we wish you a fond uh, and uh, fond adieu. Yes, that's what we're trying to say. And uh, until then, see you.